Chapter 15, Part 1 Transformation in a Time of War January to April 2005 Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable Chapter 15 Transformation in a Time of War January to April 2005 Page 365 By the end of December 2004, Multinational Force Iraq, or MNFI, had successfully cleared what its leaders saw as the largest hurdle to the holding of elections on the United Nations, or UN, timeline. Despite the setback in Mosul, the coalition had neutralized the insurgent safe havens, allowing the voting to take place on time with few disruptions. The aftermath of the elections was steeped with change. The interim government of Ayat Alawi would transition into a lame-duck caretaker as the major political factions entered into an intense competition over the premiership. At the same time, another near-complete rotation of MNFI's forces would bring new frictions inside the coalition. The army's continuation of its planned transformation resulted in the deployment to Iraq of National Guard and Reserve forces to an unprecedented degree, far beyond the limited operational reserve role for which they had been prepared. The coalition also developed a new campaign plan that transformed the mission in Iraq, changing its focus from defeating the insurgency to the setting of conditions for transitioning responsibility to the Iraqi Security Forces, or ISF, and Iraqi government. In the process, MNFI refocused many coalition units on an advisory mission, a role the U.S. military had largely not performed since the Vietnam War. As coalition forces were transforming, so too was the insurgency. Shia resistance groups, bloodied by nearly a year of costly failed uprisings, were dramatically changing their organization and operating modes. The Sunni insurgency, reeling from losses during the November battles in Fallujah and elsewhere, was also evolving into a new threat, as Islamist extremist organizations eclipsed militant groups associated with the former regime. All three of these principal groups, coalition, Shia insurgency, and Sunni insurgency, were responding to the same rapidly changing operating environment as well as to the tempestuous waxing and waning of Iraqi public opinion with each group attempting to adapt to the changing conditions faster than its foes. The January 2005 Transitional National Assembly Elections Page 365 Securing the Elections As the elections approached, General George W. Casey Jr. judged that more combat forces would be required to overcome what he expected would be an intense insurgent effort to thwart the voting and deal the coalition a decisive political defeat. The potential threats were great enough that some coalition leaders were concerned the elections might not actually occur. MNCI Commander Lieutenant General Thomas F. Metz, for example, believed that, quote, if there was ever really a time, like the Tet of 1968, the enemy would expend all tactical resources for a strategic win, it would be to crash the election. End quote. Casey believed that coalition forces were, quote, operating in a window of vulnerability, end quote, because of the feebleness of the ISF, Iraq's economy, and its weak governmental capacity, and that terrorists and insurgents would seek to take advantage of that window. As a result, 
In late October 2004, Casey requested extensions to the year-long deployment of nearly 6,500 soldiers. A two-month extension for the entire 2nd Brigade 1st Cavalry Division in Multinational Division Baghdad, or MNDB, and a two-week extension for elements of the 1st Infantry Division in Multinational Division North Central, or MNDNC. In early December, the 2nd Brigade 25th Infantry Division in MNDNC and Multinational Force West's, or MNFW's, 31st Marine Expeditionary Unit, or MEU, in Najaf, also received two-month extensions, increasing the number of extended troops to over 15,000. Along with the extended units, two parachute infantry battalions from the Division Ready Brigade of the 82nd Airborne Division deployed to Iraq in early December for a four-month period spanning the elections. The decision to expand the footprint of American soldiers, which ran counter to the core concepts of the campaign plan, was a difficult one for Casey, who worried that the additional deployments might cause the Iraqis to question the legitimacy of the Iraqi interim government. Given the threat to the political process, however, he ultimately decided it was a risk worth taking. These decisions brought the number of U.S. forces in Iraq to over 150,000, the highest level since the invasion. The election itself was a complex logistical problem, with more than 6,000 polling stations and 14 million eligible voters to protect. On top of the challenge of such large, raw numbers, all deliveries of ballots and voting equipment had to be coordinated with multiple election monitoring organizations to ensure the transparency and legitimacy of the vote. The delivery of ballots and equipment left no room for error because a shortage or compromise of ballots on Election Day could have strategic implications. Election support activities were sometimes costly. As part of these efforts to secure polling sites, ballots, and the overall electoral process, a Marine CH-53 Super Stallion crashed in a sandstorm on January 25th, killing 31 in what became the coalition's single largest casualty-producing event of the war. The loss of six other Americans in separate incidents on the same day also made it the deadliest day for U.S. troops since the start of the war. In advance of the elections, both the coalition and the Iraqi authorities took extra measures for security. MNCI directed subordinate units to increase their operations in order to kill or capture insurgents who posed a threat to the voting. Information that coalition troops in normal times would not have acted on because of its quality now generated operations to take as many potential threats off the street as possible and throw the insurgency off balance. At the same time, Iraqi Interior Minister Fallah Naqib put in place tough security measures that included a nighttime curfew, a ban on carrying weapons, and driving restrictions that made swaths of the country off-limits for vehicles. Iraq's borders were also closed on January 29th as an additional measure to prevent foreign fighters from infiltrating and disrupting the elections. General Babakir Zabari, the chief of staff of the Iraqi Joint Forces, suspended leave for all Iraqi forces from January 25th through the elections, a measure that significantly increased the number of Iraqi troops available for election security. Because Iraqi soldiers traditionally took one week of home leave each month, one quarter of the Iraqi forces would have been off-duty on Election Day, without Zabari's order. To ensure the physical security of elections and showcase the effectiveness of the ISF, two rings of security would surround voting sites. An outer ring of coalition forces would stop any larger-scale attacks, 
while an inner ring within sight of the actual polling stations would be comprised exclusively of ISF, thereby putting an Iraqi face on the security band that Iraqis would see. These preparations were for good reasons. In the final weeks leading up to the election, Sunni insurgents made concerted efforts to intimidate voters into not participating and derail the overall process. On December 30th, Ansar al-Sunnah, the Islamic army in Iraq, and the Mujahideen army jointly warned Iraqis they faced death as apostates if they participated in the elections, after which the entire 700-person electoral commission in embattled Mosul promptly resigned. The insurgents also continued their attacks on political leaders and infrastructure as a way to undermine the legitimacy of the new Iraqi government and derail the electoral process. On January 4th, insurgents assassinated the governor of Baghdad province, Ali al-Haidari, the most senior Iraqi official killed in over six months. On January 7th, insurgents caused a brief nationwide power blackout by attacking transmission lines in Tikrit and the Baiji power plant. On January 23rd, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi joined the insurgent chorus, calling candidates, quote, demi-idols, end quote, and declaring those who voted to be kufar, or apostates, who could be legally killed without penalty. Zarqawi also claimed that the elections were a coalition conspiracy to bring the Shia to power. On January 27th, the eve of the elections, insurgents blew up a school chosen to be a polling station in Baghdad and posted a video of the execution of a candidate on Prime Minister Ayad Alawi's electoral list. The Decision Not to Delay the Elections The biggest threat to successful elections came not from the insurgency, but from the political process itself. As Election Day approached, various Sunni politicians and political factions, including Iraqi Interim President Ghazi al-Yawar, approached MNFI requesting the election be postponed so they could mobilize additional Sunni participation. Fearing the possibility of a boycott, Sunni leaders had come to realize that the most significant pitfall of Iraq's election was the nationwide single-district, single-list system. If Sunni Arabs boycotted the vote, the single district meant a national parliament would be formed anyway, and Sunnis would be effectively excluded from the process of constructing the new Iraqi constitution, a result with potentially permanent consequences. Quote, This election has a unique role of drafting a constitution, end quote, Yawar told reporters. Quote, How can you draft a constitution unless all ethnicities, sects, religions, and political ideologies are included? End quote. By late November, with fighting in Anbar and Nineveh still ongoing, 15 Iraqi political parties from across the Sunni Arab and Kurdish political groupings had formally requested an election delay. Those urging delay included interim Prime Minister Alawi, who worried that the devastation that had been wrought on Fallujah during Operation Al-Fajr a mere six weeks before the elections would deter Sunnis from participating. Despite Alawi's and the Sunnis' requests, U.S. leaders decided to move ahead with the elections as scheduled. In a joint letter to Alawi on November 29th, Casey and Ambassador John Negroponte stressed that, quote, a decision to delay the election will unavoidably be understood by everyone as military success for the insurgency and a counterbalance to the success of the battle for Fallujah. In other words, Having announced that we were battling to provide room and space for the election, we will in essence be saying that that effort has failed, at least for the moment. End quote. 
Postponing the election would also have been difficult to sell to Grand Ayatollah Sistani and other Shia leaders who were clamoring for elections they expected would cement a Shia political majority. The letter also noted that asking for additional extensions for forces whose deployment had already been extended for the elections was extremely difficult. During one MNFI meeting, Casey had dryly opined that an extension should not be granted in hopes that political conditions would improve because, quote, rarely does anything in this country get better with time, end quote. The Vote and the Boycott on January 30th, Election Day, many of the senior coalition leaders held their breath as polling sites opened, unsure that Iraqis would show up to vote. Ahead of the elections, several estimates from the intelligence community had predicted that the elections simply were not going to be able to happen. But despite 108 reported attacks on Election Day against polling stations, roughly 8.5 million Iraqis had voted, a 58% turnout. The decision to generate Iraqi troops rapidly to secure the voting paid off. Having been trained to the standard that had been decided upon in MNFI and MNSTCI's summer 2004 baseline review, the Iraqi army successfully functioned as platoons and held the inner cordon around polling sites. Deterred by the Iraqi forces and blunted by Casey's and Metz's plans, insurgent groups were simply unable to prevent the vote. For the American troops who witnessed the voting, the Iraqi population's bravery in the face of insurgent threats was astonishing, as was their determination. Because of the bans on driving, many Iraqis walked for miles for the opportunity to vote in their country's first democratically held election in decades. To a degree, MNFI's broader strategy of fighting to the elections had succeeded, and at the operational level, the Sunni insurgency was reeling from the loss of its Fallujah sanctuary and thousands of fighters. During December 2004, insurgent attacks in Anbar fell precipitously to 50% of what they had been before Operation Al-Fajr, and insurgents were unable to mount attacks that would effectively shut down the election. The bans on driving and the national curfew were especially effective, and the attacks the Ramadi Shura Council had planned to launch into Baghdad, as well as plans to use car bombs against voters in Fallujah, simply could not take place as a result. For American soldiers, the sight of millions of Iraqis voting in their first free elections in 54 years was a wonderful, feel-good moment akin to an earlier generation's liberation of Europe. One brigade commander in Baghdad later described the event as, quote, the single most professionally inspirational day of my life, end quote. The elections produced nearly unbridled optimism among many in the coalition that the campaign plan had been the correct path to follow, that the elections had, as coalition leaders described it, quote, locked in irreversible momentum, end quote, that gave the Iraqis, quote, an alternative to the insurgency, end quote. In terms of creating a new government, however, the January elections were inconclusive. Alawi's Iraqi National Accord had clearly lost, garnering only 40 seats representing 14% of the vote, but among the winners there was no consensus on who would replace him as prime minister. The United Iraqi Alliance, a Shia Islamist grouping that had secured the endorsement of Grand Ayatollah Sistani, had clearly won, with 140 seats and 58% of the popular vote, but the group was far from monolithic. It was an amalgam of various Shia Islamist factions, Sistani supporters, the Dawah party, 
the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, or SCIRI, a handful of smaller parties, and even Sadrists who had joined the political process despite Moqtada Sadr's calls for a boycott. Because seating a president and prime minister required a two-thirds majority of the seats in the National Assembly, the United Iraqi Alliance needed to caucus with the coalition of Kurdish parties, the Kurdistan Alliance, which had earned 75 seats and 26% of the vote. As a result of the fragile alliances within and among the various parties that had to be formed, a full four months would pass before the parties would agree on a new prime minister and cabinet. The long negotiation created a significant loss in political momentum for the Iraqi government and an extended lame-duck period for Alawi, who, by the time his coalition lost the elections, had governed for just seven months. As Alawi, interim president Ghazi al-Yawar, and other Sunni leaders had expected, millions of Sunni Arabs boycotted the election. Casey's strategy of clearing seven key insurgent-dominated cities had allowed the elections to take place, but they had not created an environment that encouraged Sunnis to vote. In Nineveh, voter turnout was only 17%, most of whom were Kurdish voters. In all of Sunni-majority Anbar, only 16,682 Iraqis voted, about 2% of registered voters. Sunnis boycotted for a variety of reasons. Some, in a bizarre example of how conspiracy theories can trump reality in the Middle East, entered the election period convinced that Sunni Arabs were actually a demographic majority in Iraq, and that Saddam Hussein had perpetuated a myth of the Shia majority as a boogeyman to instill fear among Sunnis and create a rationale for his rule. Even if they did not vote, many Sunnis believed they would so outnumber the Shia that the elections would be discredited by their absence, and the Sunnis would then naturally win any ensuing sectarian conflict. Others were swayed by calls from insurgent leaders for a boycott, or were driven off by insurgent threats and intimidation. Still others, particularly tribal leaders in Anbar, supported the boycott because they feared elections would upend their traditional standing and influence. In the weeks after the election, the extent of the Sunnis' miscalculation became clear. Their boycott guaranteed the election spoils would go to Shia Islamist and Kurdish nationalist parties whose aims were antithetical to those of the Sunnis. Of 275 seats in the transitional National Assembly that would write their country's constitution and shepherd the country toward independence, Sunni Arabs earned only 16 seats, a dramatic underrepresentation. Estimated by the UN and the coalition to be roughly 20% of Iraq's population, Sunni Arabs would hold just 5% of the seats in the assembly. By comparison, Turkomans earned 13 seats and Christians earned 3 seats, even though both groups combined made up about 5% of Iraq's population. When combined with the abuse of mainly Sunni Arab detainees in Abu Ghraib prison, the perceived destruction of Sunni Arab Fallujah just two months earlier, and intense operations by coalition special operations forces, Sunnis viewed the election outcome as evidence that the coalition had embarked on an anti-Sunni project. Thus, for many Sunnis, instead of a unifying moment for the Iraqi nation, the election was a justification to continue fighting. As a result, the election outcome had helped sow the seeds for future sectarian conflict and a core element of MNFI's end state for the coalition campaign, that the Iraqi government should be representative of its population, had been thwarted. On February 3rd, just four days after the elections, 
Negroponte sent Casey a September 1967 clipping from the New York Times. In the celebratory post-election atmosphere, the article was a caution. Quote, U.S. encouraged by Vietnam vote, end quote, the Times headline read. Quote, officials cite 83% turnout despite Viet Cong terror. United States officials were surprised and heartened today at the size of turnout in South Vietnam's presidential election, despite a Viet Cong terrorist campaign to disrupt the voting. End quote. Negroponte's warning was simple and prophetic. There was much work still to be done, because successful elections alone were no guarantee of democracy and stability. The Operational Consequences of Force Transformation with the stress of the election concluded, U.S. commanders deemed it safe for unit redeployments to resume, and U.S. forces began another massive unit rotation. While the yearly rotations generally created friction and a loss in momentum, the rotations of 2005 created particular turbulence because they were the first that involved transformed, or modular, units. Because of the late 2003 decision by Chief of Staff of the Army General Peter J. Schoomaker to follow through with Army transformation during wartime, the institutional army underwent sweeping change, as did the units it provided for Iraq and other operating theaters. Originally begun in the late 1990s, transformation had aimed to make the army leaner, more rapidly deployable, and equipped with the most modern technology. However, it was an operationally disruptive process. Even in 1999, a much quieter operational period than 2004, Secretary of the Army Louis Caldera had described transformation as, quote, changing the wheels while driving at 70 miles an hour, end quote. At the center of the transformation was the creation of modular brigade combat teams with six battalions of different types instead of three maneuver battalions of the same branch that existed in untransformed or legacy brigades. Modularization would streamline differences among brigades, and the army would move from an inventory of 17 different types of brigades to only three. This change was meant to create flexible units that could deploy more rapidly, with all necessary supporting elements already contained within the organization. The increased deployability was intended to enable the army to respond more quickly to conventional threats, such as North Korea, or to react to contingency operations, such as in the Balkans, Panama, and Somalia. A product of the revolution in military affairs, the modular units would theoretically enhance their combat power through new weapon systems, better connectivity, and improved situational awareness, all of which would supposedly allow for a reduction in each brigade's manpower. The transformed brigade combat teams retained only two maneuver battalions, but added a smaller Reconnaissance, Surveillance, and Target Acquisition, or RSTA, squadron to replace the 3rd Maneuver Battalion that Legacy Brigades had. The RSTA squadron had only about half the personnel of a maneuver battalion. It was lightly armed, based on the assumption that the unit would not have to fight to gain information or use scouts to make contact with the enemy, but would instead detect the enemy through sensors deployed by higher-level units. This assumption was severely tested in Iraq, and the reduction in personnel would prove to be a significant limitation in manpower-intensive counterinsurgency operations. The transformed brigades would also have their own field artillery battalion, a support battalion, and a special troops battalion that contained military intelligence, engineer, and signal personnel. Division headquarters were transformed as well, 
stripped of many assets that were pushed down to the brigade combat teams. The traditional Divisional Artillery Headquarters, Military Intelligence Battalion, and Divisional Engineer Battalion were dissolved. Having suffered more casualties from friendly than enemy air power since the end of the Korean War, the Army liquidated most air defense units at the division level. While pushing intelligence assets down to brigades was helpful in the counterinsurgency fight, it would also create challenges. The division headquarters responsible for tracking events and synthesizing the enemy picture across multiple brigades in their battle space would no longer have some of the assets they had once used for this purpose. With the notional personnel excess trimmed from brigade combat teams and divisions, the Army intended to use the personnel, quote, savings, end quote, to grow additional brigades, adding one brigade combat team per division. In a sense, the transformational changes were a shell game in that the Army's configuration would change, but its overall strength would not. Transformation was also a race against time to meet the demands of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, measured in brigade combat teams. As the Army transformed more divisions, the number of brigade combat teams in the Army inventory would increase. By 2004, Transformation added three brigades to the Army's roster for potential employment. By the end of 2005, three more were added, and in 2006, another four, for a total of ten new deployable brigade combat teams in three years. Stresses on the Force In 2004, as military planners selected the replacement units for the 2005-2006 mass rotation of forces as well as the emergency deployment of forces prompted by the April uprisings, the Army only had 34 combat arms brigades in its active component and 39 in the reserve component. Nearly every active unit in the Army had already deployed once, and Secretary of Defense, or SECDEF, Donald H. Rumsfeld, was extremely reluctant to approve unit extensions beyond the year-long standard. The Iraq theater requirement was 15 brigades. The Operation Enduring Freedom, or OEF, requirement was two brigades. The combined missions in Kosovo and Bosnia took another brigade combat team, and for the standing mission to deter North Korea, the Army preferred to maintain two brigade combat teams on the peninsula. The requirements were heavy enough that in January 2004, Rumsfeld, who was loath to increase the size of the Army, had agreed to use emergency authorities granted by Congress to temporarily exceed the Army end strength by 30,000. In this context, the Army faced a quandary. Army leaders wanted to continue to transform, but the transformation process would require taking brigades offline from deployments in order to reorganize them, equip them with new weapons and sensors, and train them. Because the Army had run low on available active duty brigades for the 2005 rotation, it had to either postpone transformation or reach deep into the Army inventory to deploy active duty and National Guard brigades that it did not usually deploy. The Army selected the second option, choosing to continue transformation with the hope that its perceived long-term advantages would outweigh short-term risks of deploying less experienced guard and active duty brigades. Among active brigades, the Army decided to deploy a brigade from the 2nd Infantry Division in South Korea that had not deployed outside the peninsula since the end of the Korean War and had served as a strategic deterrent to North Korea for more than a half century. The 2nd Brigade, 2nd Infantry Division was typically manned by soldiers on a one-year tour without their families. Signifying the level of turbulence and change the Army was experiencing, during 2004, 
All Army personnel in Korea were given the option to extend for an additional year in exchange for a bonus payment. Nearly 8,000 personnel had taken the bonus, including many in the 2nd Brigade. Thus, when the brigade was notified that it would deploy to Iraq for an additional year, it meant that some soldiers would live apart from their families for nearly three years. Another unusual brigade-sized unit that would deploy to Iraq in 2005 was the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment, or ACR, which served as the opposing force, or op for at the Army's National Training Center in California. When the regiment received its deployment order, it had significant equipment shortages because its principal mission was to operate replicas of Soviet-style weapons in war games against U.S. units, a fact that regimental leaders had trouble making staffers at higher echelons understand. Quote, I had more Op 4 surrogate vehicles than I had M1 tanks, Bradleys, M4 rifles, you name it. And as we began the process of getting ready to deploy the regiment, I had staffers at Headquarters DA, or Department of the Army, and FORCECOM, the U.S. Army Forces Command, when we would send requests for equipment, say, why are you guys calling us? You guys already have all this stuff. End quote. While both the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment and the 2nd Brigade 2nd Infantry Division were technically capable of deploying in the event of contingencies, few had expected such a situation would ever arise. By 2005, the Army's rotation policies were having other important effects on the active force as well. In 2005, the Army continued to use brigade combat teams as its primary means of measuring dwell time between deployments to ensure that repeated rotations did not exhaust units and personnel, but this method did not accurately capture the strain on individual soldiers. Since Army policy required that deploying brigade combat teams should have a full complement of personnel, all too often soldiers returning from one deployment were transferred to an organization that was about to begin another and would thus find themselves back in Iraq mere months after they had left. This challenge was especially true in low-density specialties such as interrogators, Arabic linguists, unmanned aerial vehicle personnel, and military police, among others. Army leaders did not make these decisions capriciously, but because they were the least bad of the available options given the capped end strength of the army. Units had to deploy with sufficient combat power to ensure they could accomplish their mission, and sacrifices had to be made. For this reason, on June 3, 2004, the army issued a stop-loss order preventing soldiers in units deploying within 90 days from retiring or leaving the service. The same month, the Army announced that it would involuntarily recall to active service up to 5,600 members of the Individual Ready Reserve to help fill critical specialties and requirements. Committing the National Guard Recognizing the Army's dilemma in managing transformation and combat deployments simultaneously, the very kind of issue for which Casey had once been responsible as the Army's Vice Chief of Staff, Casey accepted the Army's plan to deploy eight National Guard brigades for the 2005-2006 MNFI rotations. Quote, We had to use the National Guard brigades in 2005 so that the next iteration of brigades that came in would be fully modularly converted, end quote, Casey later recalled. Quote, It gave the regular Army the breathing space to convert the modular brigades so that when they came over, they were more capable than the ones that had been there. End quote. 
The concept of using National Guard brigades as part of a limited operational reserve had been part of a national military strategy for decades. After the Vietnam War, then-Chief of Staff of the Army General Crichton Abrams established a total force concept that moved large numbers of the Army's combat service support units into the Army Reserve and National Guard, thereby ensuring that any large-scale military commitment would require a national mobilization of the reserve component. Likewise, the National Guard would also contribute combat units to the total force in the form of round-out brigades that were assigned to mobilize and deploy with active-duty divisions, thereby bringing those divisions up to full strength. However, when the concept of round-out brigades was tested during the mobilization of Army forces for Operation Desert Storm, it failed, with none of the three activated round-out brigades receiving a certification that they were ready for combat. With the end of the Cold War bringing a reduction in the Army's active component from 18 divisions to 10, correcting the flaws of the roundout system became crucial. In its place, the Army established a new program that created 15 Enhanced Separate Brigades, or ESB, in the National Guard. These brigades were the Guard's highest priority combat units, receiving additional resources, training, and personnel to make them ready to deploy to a combat zone within 90 days of mobilization. Nearly all of the National Guard brigades that deployed to Iraq in 2005 and 2006 would come from this pool of enhanced separate brigades. Even though enhanced guard brigades were an important component of the U.S. national security strategy, conventional wisdom held that they would be used similarly to their roundout predecessors, with a brigade or two deploying at a time to fill operational requirements. There had been little expectation that they would be deployed en masse, eight brigades in one year. This decision to deploy nearly three divisions worth of National Guard brigades during the same rotation would have a substantial operational impact. By March 2005, there were 69,147 guardsmen in Iraq, making up nearly half of MNFI's total strength. With transformation in progress among the Army's active division headquarters, the 42nd Infantry Division from the New York National Guard was activated to serve as an MND headquarters, becoming the first National Guard division to deploy into combat since the Korean War, and the first to command regular Army brigades. To help synchronize the division's efforts as it assumed battle space in Iraq, the Army assigned an active-duty brigadier general as one of the assistant division commanders and sprinkled active-duty personnel throughout the division's staff. Casey left most of the complex political and tactical issues associated with where to assign the National Guard brigades to the MNCI commander, though he did monitor their locations. Quote, We put them in places that were not necessarily the highest risk places, end quote, he recalled later. Quote, Good commanders put their good guys in the tough spots and the less good guys in the other spots. In my mind, I knew that I was not going to get quite the capability out of the National Guard units as I got out of some of the others, but I did not think it was going to be a lot different. End quote. Major General Peter Corelli, the MNDB commander who would see his 2nd Brigade replaced by the 256th Brigade from the Louisiana National Guard at the end of 2004, saw a similar gap. He assessed that the incoming Guard Brigade was, quote, less capable based on force structure and equipment, end quote, and was six months away from being as well-trained as an active-duty brigade. Metz, meanwhile, recalled that for his tenure as MNCI commander, quote, 
Major General John Batiste of the 1st Infantry Division put the 30th Separate Brigade, North Carolina National Guard, in a province that wasn't as tough of a province but nonetheless needed those troops to task. General Corelli of the 1st Cavalry Division didn't have the option in Baghdad. He had to give a part of the city to the 39th Brigade out of Arkansas, and they just had to step up to the plate. Were they as good as the Blackjack Brigade, 2nd BCT, 1st Cavalry Division, on day one? Probably not. Were they as good when they left? Probably so. End quote. Several of the National Guard brigades were not assigned their own area of operations, but instead had their subunits detached to augment other brigades or were assigned theater security missions. In only one case among the 2005 unit rotations did Casey become directly involved in emplacing a National Guard brigade. When MNCI assigned the 2nd Brigade, 28th Infantry Division, Pennsylvania National Guard, to the insurgent stronghold of Ramadi, a skeptical Casey advised MNCI to change the decision. Quote, I went back probably two or three times and said you really have to figure a different place for the 2nd BCT, 28th Infantry Division Brigade. Putting them in Ramadi is not setting them up for success, end quote, he recounted. Regimental Combat Team, or RCT-8, a Marine unit whose battle space was adjacent to the area of operations that 2nd Brigade 28th Infantry Division Pennsylvania National Guard would be assuming, shared Casey's concerns that Ramadi might be beyond the abilities of the National Guard unit. Quote, The 228th Infantry Pennsylvania ARNG, Army National Guard, is going to one of our worst areas, replacing 2-2-BCT, one of the Army's best units, end quote. RCT-8 leaders reported to MNFI counterparts, adding that the assignment was, quote, a recipe for disaster, end quote. One difference in capabilities between National Guard brigades and their regular Army counterparts was that, despite the ESB initiative, many National Guard units lacked the same modern equipment. While the Army had fielded the upgraded family of medium tactical vehicles in the 1990s, the workhorse vehicle of the National Guard wheeled fleet remained the antiquated deuce-and-a-half, or two-and-a-half-ton truck, a vehicle so old that the last one had rolled off the production line in 1977. An even more significant disparity was the National Guard unit's shortage of armored vehicles, a problem that had bedeviled the coalition from the start of the war. By December 2004, the Army only had 69% of the armored or hardened vehicles that it needed in Iraq, and for National Guard units, the shortfall was even more acute. The issue of insufficient armor protection for many of the deploying National Guard units came to a head when Rumsfeld visited National Guard soldiers in Kuwait who were preparing to move into Iraq. During a December 8, 2004 meeting at which the SECDEF took questions from soldiers, Specialist Thomas Wilson of the Tennessee National Guard's 278th Regimental Combat Team complained that members of his unit had to, quote, scrounge through local landfills for pieces of rusty scrap metal and bulletproof glass, what they call hillbilly armor, to bolt onto their trucks for protection against roadside bombs in Iraq, end quote. The situation was so dire that Lieutenant Colonel John Zimmerman, the 278th Regimental Combat Team's staff judge advocate, noted that 95% of the unit's trucks had insufficient armor and that the regiment had been provided 70 tons of steel plates to bolt or weld on in order to compensate. To these complaints, the SECDEF responded, quote, You go to war with the army you have, not the army you might want or wish to have at a later time. 
End quote. The Unit Exodus of 2005 After the January elections, the new coalition units began to arrive in Iraq and assume responsibility for battle space. Third Corps, which formed the MNCI headquarters, was replaced by 18th Airborne Corps from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and Third Corps Commander Metz handed command of MNCI to 18th Airborne Corps Commander Lieutenant General John R. Vines on February 10th. Vines was an infantry officer who had spent almost his entire career in airborne or ranger units and had parachuted into Panama during the 1989 invasion. More importantly, he had commanded all U.S. and coalition forces in Afghanistan in 2003. In mid-February, Multinational Brigade Northwest's or MNBNW's headquarters, Task Force Olympia, made up of personnel from 1st Corps, was replaced by Task Force Freedom, comprised of personnel from the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. Task Force Olympia's only major maneuver element, the 3rd Brigade's 2nd Infantry Division, Stryker, had been replaced by the 1st Brigade 25th Infantry Division Striker in mid-October 2004. Some of the original mistakes in the creation of Task Force Olympia were corrected during this transition. While the amount of combat power was not increased and MNB and W remained an economy of force operation, the Task Force commander was upgraded to a two-star position and filled by Major General David M. Rodriguez. The shortage of headquarters personnel was also addressed by the addition of nearly 150 soldiers, including 50 military intelligence specialists, to help piece together the intelligence picture across Ninawa province. Unfortunately, since the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment was a regimental headquarters performing the functions of a division headquarters, almost all of the additional personnel were individual augmentees pulled from units across Iraq and across the Army some without the requisite position specialty or experience. In MNDNC, the 1st Infantry Division was replaced by Major General Joseph J. Toledo's 42nd Infantry Division, the National Guard unit from New York. The 42nd Infantry Division itself was a patchwork with two active duty brigades from the 3rd Infantry Division, as well as the 278th Regimental Combat Team from the Tennessee National Guard and the 116th Cavalry Brigade from the Idaho National Guard. The Marines in MNFW rotated later than the Army forces, mostly in March. 1st MEF and Lieutenant General John F. Sattler handed over responsibility to Major General Stephen Johnson, Deputy Commander of 2nd MEF. With the MNCI commander as a three-star general, the Marine Corps had decided to make the senior Marine in Iraq equal in rank to the other MNDs. The Marines considered consolidating the MEF and Marine Division headquarters, but ultimately decided to retain the two organizations. Below the MEF headquarters, now identified as 2nd MEF Forward, Major General Richard A. Huck's 2nd Marine Division replaced Major General Richard F. Natonsky's 1st Marine Division. The 2nd Marine Division brought with it two regimental combat teams from Camp Lejeune, RCT-2 and RCT-8, to replace RCT-1 and RCT-7, respectively. In Baghdad, the 1st Cavalry Division was replaced by the 3rd Infantry Division under Major General William Fuzzy Webster. Webster's division was assigned one less brigade combat team than the 1st Cavalry Division, but nearly double the territory, since MNDB's area expanded to include part of the area formerly controlled by the Spanish Brigade in Multinational Division Central South, or MNDCS. The Screna Incident 
In Multinational Division Southeast, or MNDSE, a single incident prompted the final withdrawal of the Italian contingent and the creation of another brigade-sized hole in the fragile southern sector. On March 4, 2005, agents from the Italian Military Intelligence Service obtained the release of Giuliana Screna, an Italian journalist who had been kidnapped by insurgents and held for ransom for a month. In the immediate aftermath of her release, the Italian agents transporting her to the Baghdad airport came upon a traffic control point manned by troops of 1st Battalion 69th Infantry, a New York National Guard unit. The Italians had not coordinated their mission and route with MNFI or any other coalition elements, and as the vehicle carrying Screna sped toward the checkpoint, the New York soldiers on duty gave warnings from a spotlight and a green laser. Fearing the Italians' vehicle was a car bomb when it did not react to the warnings, the American soldiers fired at the vehicle, wounding Screna and one Italian agent while killing another, Major General Nicola Calipari. Coming after the 2003 Nasseria bombing that had killed 19 Italians, the Screna shooting caused the collapse of Italian popular support for the Iraq mission. Less than two weeks after the incident, Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi announced that Italy would withdraw its 3,000 soldiers, the fourth largest coalition contingent at the time. The Netherlands, Poland, and Ukraine, facing similar domestic pressure, also announced they would leave the coalition. Arrival of the Transformed Units as the units of the third rotation of Operation Iraqi Freedom, or OIF, arrived in Iraq in early 2005, the 3rd Infantry Division typified the challenges of transforming the army in the midst of war. Having redeployed to Fort Stewart, Georgia in September 2003 after being the main effort of the invasion force, the division was chosen to return to Iraq as part of the troop rotation that would occur in early 2005. Because its equipment had been left in Iraq in 2003 to be reused by the units replacing it, the division had arrived home with only 10% of its reportable equipment, much of which had to be sent to maintenance depots to be refurbished. This shortage made training difficult and forced unit leaders to become creative to prepare the division for war a second time. Quote, We had to go back to doing something from the 1920s, establishing pools of equipment that would be handed off from company to company as they went out to train, end quote, Webster recalled. One unit even used golf carts from the Fort Stewart golf course to practice mounted maneuver and convoy operations because they had no combat vehicles. At the same time the division faced these training challenges, army leaders decided to make the first, quote, modular division, end quote, and instructed Webster to reorganize his units. Quote, figure out how to find four or five brigades out of the three that you have now, end quote, chief of staff of the army, General Schoomaker, told Webster, adding that the new brigades should be, quote, sustainable by themselves and capable of plugging in and deploying with any division headquarters, end quote. The smaller, modular brigades were outfitted with new technology designed to improve their tracking of both friendly and enemy forces, along with new equipment designed to make the brigades more capable than legacy brigades. As Webster realigned battalions to grow the additional brigade, he was only able to apportion to each brigade two maneuver battalions, but Schoomaker believed the loss of the 3rd Battalion could be mitigated by the improved capability of each brigade. Schoomaker also assumed that if two maneuver battalions were insufficient in a brigade combat team's area of operations, the theater commander could take a battalion from elsewhere in the theater and strengthen the main effort. 
Unfortunately, this assumption ran headlong into the widespread shortage of forces that already existed across Iraq, and maneuver commanders across the country were feeling starved of combat power. When the 3rd Infantry Division deployed to Iraq, the concept of brigade modularity was tested immediately. MNCI assigned two of the division's brigades to the 42nd Infantry Division in MNDNC, while the 3rd Infantry Division, assigned to MNDB, would retain two of its own brigades, but receive the 256th Brigade of the Louisiana National Guard, the 3rd Brigade 1st Armored Division, the 2nd Brigade 10th Mountain Division, and later the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment. The plug-and-play nature of the modularized or transformed brigade combat teams created additional challenges. Often, the division headquarters had not worked or trained with the brigades assigned to them in Iraq. For many units, the critical component of mission command, that commanders should be intimately familiar with their subordinate leaders and vice versa, was simply not in place. As legacy brigades were replaced by transformed brigades and vice versa, operational leaders began to observe important differences in capability. Because of their diminished manpower, transformed brigades that replaced legacy brigades often had difficulties covering the same battle space. The RSTA squadrons created the most problems. As Webster realized in Baghdad, they were, quote, too light and too small for the kind of fight we were in. They were not capable of independently gathering reconnaissance and surveillance information for us, and they were not capable of conducting security operations by themselves. So, it caused us to change. In the case of each brigade, we had to change the size of the piece of ground that we gave them, and the number of tasks that we gave them had to be reduced because the recon and surveillance organizations were smaller than the battalions or squadrons that they replaced. End quote. To add to the newly arriving brigade combat team's challenges, many were broken up as they arrived, with some of their battalions detached to perform different missions. The idea that brigades were modular and interchangeable began to extend in practice to battalions, which army leaders had not intended to be plug-and-play organizations that could be assigned to different brigade headquarters without any impact on their effectiveness. The 11th ACR illustrated this new trend as its subordinate battalions were chopped away from the regiment to perform three different missions in Iraq. The regimental headquarters served as the backbone of MMBNW, replacing Task Force Olympia, but the regiment's first squadron was assigned to the 3rd Infantry Division in Baghdad, and the second squadron rounded out the Mississippi National Guard's 155th Brigade Combat Team in North Babil. The breaking up of unit cohesion and the familiarity of unit leaders created significant problems with retention, casualty notification, and the process of ordering replacements, as well as with other more subjective measures of performance. As the transformed brigade combat teams were broken up and their battalions reassigned to other brigades to meet the needs of the battlefield, transformed battalions with their enhanced connectivity and command and control capabilities were often teamed with legacy units that did not have the additional technology and situational awareness, effectively negating some of the transformational capabilities. The transformed brigades, likewise, suffered growing pains as some commanders who had spent their careers in armor or infantry units now had an organic artillery battalion and other support units they were responsible for training in peacetime and employing during wartime. Over time, many MND commanders came to favor the legacy brigade combat teams for their manpower instead of the transformed brigades. 
Striker brigades were similarly in high demand because they had three maneuver battalions, like legacy brigades, but also an additional RSTA squadron, giving them a total of 757 more soldiers than a transformed brigade. The Striker brigades also had other enhanced capabilities, such as better situational awareness, more human intelligence specialists, and additional unmanned aerial vehicles. Striker vehicles earned respect because they were survivable, quiet, and fast, with tremendous tactical and operational maneuverability. Strikers could maintain a speed of 60 miles an hour, and some strikers traveled more than 88,000 kilometers in a year-long deployment. At the tactical level, the strikers carried an entire squad of infantry, 11 soldiers, far more than in Bradley fighting vehicles and up-armored high-mobility multi-purpose wheeled vehicles, or HMMWV. In terms of both troop strength and capability, in the manpower-intensive counterinsurgency fight, striker brigades received almost universal acclaim. Iraqization, page 383. The Transition Strategy. The newly arrived forces were called on to implement a revised campaign plan. Even before the January election outcome was known, MNFI had conducted a campaign process review that, coupled with a counterinsurgency study conducted in September to October 2004, reinforced the lessons of Najaf, that building the expertise of the ISF was the most critical ingredient in successful counterinsurgency operations. Improving host nation capability was so important, the fall 2004 study had concluded, that, quote, no great power had ever succeeded in a counterinsurgency without a capable indigenous partner. End quote. Accordingly, in April 2005, Casey's headquarters published an updated plan that aimed to suppress the insurgency through coalition combat operations that bought time and space for a new main effort training and equipping the ISF so that the counterinsurgency campaign could be transitioned to their responsibility. While Casey's August 2004 mission statement had focused equally on conducting full-spectrum counterinsurgency operations and on training and equipping the ISF, the new April 2005 mission statement read, quote, In partnership with the Iraqi Transitional Government, or ITG, MNFI progressively transitions the counterinsurgency campaign to the ITG and Iraqi security forces, while aggressively executing counterinsurgency operations to create a security environment that permits the completion of the UNSCR or United Nations Security Council Resolution 1546 process and the sustainment of political and economic development. End quote. While the mission statement changed significantly with a new focus on transition, the end state of MNFI's campaign remained unchanged. Quote, Iraq, at peace with its neighbors and an ally in the war on terror, with a representative government that respects the human rights of all Iraqis and security forces sufficient to maintain domestic order and to deny Iraq as a safe haven for terrorists. End quote. To underscore this change in strategy, Casey emphasized to his BCT commanders that their mission was, quote, to help the Iraqis win, not to win it for the Iraqis, end quote. He also warned against creating Iraqi dependency on the coalition, noting that, quote, the longer the coalition leads the fight, the more dependent the ISF, or Iraqi security forces, becomes, end quote. 
These statements echoed the same concerns he had expressed when he took command, lessons he had drawn from his tenure in Bosnia. The Military Transition Teams The updated campaign plan would unfold in four phases. During Phase 1, MNFI would deploy roughly 250 transition teams of military advisors to improve the quality of the Iraqi army units and some national police units. The teams, which MNFI considered to be its main effort, had originally been named assistance teams, but were renamed transition teams when Rumsfeld balked at the name, noting that the term assistance could imply long-term dependence. A small effort of 15 teams would also be assigned to work with the Iraqi border forces that fell under the Interior Ministry's Department of Border Enforcement. Alawi had rejected pairing transition teams with local police because of sovereignty concerns, so within the Ministry of the Interior, there would only be transition teams with the special police forces, commandos, public order brigades, and specialized mechanized brigades, and the border police. In early December 2004, MNFI began the process of requesting personnel for the transition teams from the Joint Staff and Service Chiefs. Knowing that it would take the services time to notify personnel of the new assignments and prepare them for deployment, MNFI ordered each multinational division in Iraq to create internal transition teams out of its on-station units to support Iraqi army units in their sectors, a step Casey believed would speed up the transition process by at least six months. In what could be a record-breaking speed for clearing infamous Pentagon bureaucratic hurdles, the proposal for the externally sourced transition teams went from concept to troops on the ground in a mere six months. However, the ease with which the program cleared the Pentagon bureaucracy masked some significant disagreements about the design of the teams. MNFI planners had originally envisioned teams of 20 troops each that would embed within Iraqi units down to the company level, the echelon at which planners believed the advisors could best affect the Iraqis' fighting ability. This initial plan would mean a personnel requirement of 5,000 non-commissioned officers and field-grade officers, a figure that dismayed the joint services in the Pentagon who would have to strip many stateside units of their mid-level leaders to meet the requirement. Casey also had judged that teams of 20 U.S. troops would be unwieldy and would impinge on Iraqi sovereignty, and approved a team size of 10 advisors instead, for a total personnel requirement of 2,500. Because of the force protection risks involved, he also balked at embedding down to the company level, and instead authorized embedding the advisors at Iraqi division, brigade, and battalion levels. Casey's decision did not sit well with the planners responsible for organizing the transition teams who tried to dissuade him by arguing that, quote, the lack of embedded support at the company level is counter to lessons from successful coin operations and counter to U.S.-slash-U.K. practice with other indigenous armies, end quote. To collect enough manpower to restore the company-level advisors, they proposed eliminating division-level advisors and pairing transition teams with only a portion of the ISF, but Casey was not swayed by this argument. Another debate arose over whether the U.S. military should use individual augmentees or standing units to form the advisory teams. As chief of staff of the Army, Schoomaker disagreed with the concept of creating small advisory teams of individual replacements. He believed the advisory mission should be given to standing brigades and battalions whose commanders would be accountable for its success. Cognizant of the drawbacks of the Vietnam-era individual replacement system, Schoomaker was reluctant to deploy individuals rather than cohesive units. 
He also feared that individuals deployed as advisors would be lost in the personnel system and forced into back-to-back -back deployments, causing them to burn out faster. By contrast, Casey and MNFI believed many army units were already struggling to adapt to the counterinsurgency environment in Iraq and could not be expected to train the ISF as well. In addition, as he had concluded from his Bosnia experience, Casey believed most U.S. units would be too hands-on in an advisory role, inclined to do too much of the work rather than developing the Iraqis to do it for themselves. These problems would be minimized if the advisory teams were composed of individuals that Casey and MNFI could train and shape in Iraq. He and MNFI thus insisted on individuals, and Schoomaker and the Army eventually acceded. The military transition teams, or MIT, therefore, would be ad hoc organizations made up of individuals from across the Army and other services. The notion of sending senior non-commissioned officers and field-grade officers to work in small teams outside the Army organizational structure to live with Iraqi forces in order to train them was revolutionary for the institutional army in the post-Vietnam era. In an effort to sell the newly transformed strategy and bill for additional forces to the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General John Abizade explained that, quote, as we follow General Casey's vision to shift our main effort to clearly concentrate on ISF development, we will also need to face cultural change for our own armed forces. We'll need people living with small Iraqi units and police outposts in isolated and exposed places. Managing such risk will be difficult, especially as the enemy adapts. We must stay focused on a strategy for Iraqi success. Iraqization. End quote. The newness of the MIT mission meant there was no existing training system for the advisors, and there was noticeable institutional friction in setting up the preparatory training for the initial teams. Quote, The Army couldn't get it set up fast enough to have a productive thing back here in the States, so we had to do it ourselves, end quote, Casey told military historians in 2008. To that end, Casey ordered MNFI to create a two-week training program in Iraq called the Phoenix Academy, to train the advisors in their specialized tasks. The program was ready by late April, before the first external MITs began arriving. The MIT mission also highlighted a long-running challenge that had bedeviled MNFI since the start of the war, obtaining sufficient Arabic linguists to serve as interpreters. Even before the transition teams were stood up, MNFI had been unable to meet the insatiable need for Category 1 interpreters, Iraqi nationals or other non-U.S. citizens who handled most tactical interactions, and the command was nearly 1,500 linguists short, resulting in a 64% fill of the critical requirement. Because of their need to work closely with the ISF, the transition teams would require an additional 1,200 linguists. As a result, MNFI's main effort, the development of the ISF, would be initially hobbled by a severe shortage of interpreters. End of Chapter 15, Part 1 Transformation in a Time of War January to April 2005 Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021